You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. today something different to get away from our series that we've been in. Those of you who have been here for a number of years know I've done this two other times. Forgive me, but Sometimes I just like to pull this out and remind us of what it says. And so that's what's happening today. Let me read this together. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of your of life and in your presence is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He begins by saying, preserve me. If your translation says, watch over me, that would be correct. Oh God, for you are in you I put my trust. Every generation has experienced stressful and troubled times and it seems like we are experiencing the most I think, comprehensive moral decay in centuries. And our currency still tells us, in God we trust. And yet, I don't think many in our government, nor even the people in this country, really think much about that. But for those of us who today are called believers in Christ, we... uh, I want to say to us that today, I don't think that we dare step out of our houses on any given day and falsely assume that we can make it in this world or that we can rely on our own resources. Uh, This is just one of those times in our lives when we have to sort of seriously grapple with the fact that we need the Lord's watchful care every day. Uh, our, Our faith is being challenged 
it's being challenged more than ever before in every facet. Your kids' faith is being challenged in, in major ways today. And we need to all know that he is our only hope. And with this in mind, Psalm 16, I think, challenges us uh, to evaluate not the country. I'm not going to talk about the United States today. I want to talk about us living in this country in this time that we live in. And I think the challenge for us is to really be able to evaluate our own true spiritual attitudes in light of the things that we say we believe, because that's what's being challenged, right? And so let's, uh, let's consider that this morning. Uh, verse 2, he, uh, David cries out, Oh, my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. There's this sense of a possessive statement that uh, is a direct statement of that which all of us would declare, I think, as believers, that we would say that with our lips today. But I want to just uh, sort of remind ourselves uh, what Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room as he was washing their feet. It's in John 13. And, and what he says to them is something that we need to take to heart today. You recall that the, the Lord washed their feet as he went along the line, and when he finished... It says uh, he took his garments and sat down. This is verse 12, sat down again. And then he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? And then he says, you call me teacher and you call me Lord. And you say, well, for so I am. It's one of the uh, rare times I said last week that when uh, Jesus called himself the son of man, only one time in the whole New Testament, he referred to himself often about the Son of Man, but he never called himself and said, I am the Son of Man. He never said that, but one time. And here is another one of these experiences where he actually has to say to them, you call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. It's one of the rare moments when he, again, in the first person reminds them, yes, that's who I am. I am your Lord. It's important for us to... Uh, I think sometimes just sit down, pause, and remind ourselves that when we say words like Jesus is Lord or Jesus is my Lord, because we do believe that. Most of us who are followers of Christ, you'd say he's your Lord today. But have you really just sat down and analyzed what that means and how that's transcribed into your daily life? Because then it makes a lot of different has a lot of different meanings to it than sometimes what we say in church or what we say in a, uh, to, to someone else who's a believer. It's easy to talk to another believer and say, Christ is my Lord. But how we live our lives in the world around people and how that's, tra uh, how that's transmitted to others is, is a whole different story. Here he's just reminding his disciples, you've said rightly, I am your Lord. So if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And this is more of a key in this verse 15. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So, you know, just pause and think, what has Christ done in your life? He hasn't washed your feet lately. But what has he done in your life as Lord? And then... How does that transfer to others through my life? Because that's what he's asking. 
Verse 16, most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So there's this reminder, personal reminder from the Lord, which I think today, even as David's hitting on this, that you are my Lord. Uh, And and to say that to, to the Lord today Uh, there has to be a process where we evaluate that and say, how have I fleshed that out toward others uh, in my life in the last week, the last month? Because that's that's where the rubber hits the road here. And that's a challenge we all need. Uh, You are my Lord. My goodness, he says, is nothing apart from you, he goes on to say in his prayer. And then I'm thinking about God's grace and mercy in my life and in your life that you and I are absolutely lost. We're absolutely undeserving. We're absolutely wretched sinners, aren't we, without him? And the fact that uh, the Lord has allowed us to call him Lord, and the fact that you have access to him and that you know him and you can call him your Lord is, in a sense, the result of a miracle and power uh, that God has worked in your life through his son on your behalf. It's an amazing thing, actually. That we just need to pause and just remind ourselves what that means. And so I guess my question to someone this morning is, is he truly your Lord today? In the real sense of that. The second thing is in verse 3. He says, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. So your attitude regarding the saved, or we might say regarding the saints, or however you want to call it, uh, they are all my delight. David's saying this. I mean, David's praying, and he's saying, uh, those who follow God are my delight. And and that certainly should be true for all of us uh, as we sort of contemplate that. Uh, I'm glad that God loves me. I, I, I don't understand why he loves me. I don't understand Uh, you probably would say the same thing. I don't understand knowing me that he would love me. But the question is, why does God expect all of us to love other believers? Why do do I have to love other believers? There's some believers I don't like. Let's be honest. A lot of you don't like other people who profess Christ. Uh, we, We struggle as a as a human being in that area of our lives. And this is not one of those optional, nice things that we do. Uh, uh, This is something that he's calling us to understand about ourselves. And and I think it's important. The the New Living Translation, I'm going to read just a a, a statement from that, from 1 John chapter 4. You all know this verse, probably 20 and 21. But I'm going to read it from the New Living Translation. Here's what it says. If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer... That person is a liar. For if we do not love people that we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command. Those who love God must also love their fellow believers. I I think in my estimation, this is a huge problem among Christians. I mean, we know that just from the divisions that we see in our own lives. I mean, you, you're talking about denominational differences, national differences, uh, conservative versus liberal differences. You're talking, you know, worship style differences. You're talking ethnic cultural differences. 
uh, 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 this morning, I, I, I thought about doing this, and I, I didn't tell the guys. I was going to have them crank up the reverb and, uh, and preach the way I've heard it in third world countries, in some countries that I've been to, or your voice just echoes. I, I think that they must think that's a, that sounds like God speaking from heaven or something, you know. But it's just reverb. But uh, uh, it seems like in most of the countries I've visited, that's just a thing. And uh, God bless Meshed, if you're watching, God bless you. Uh, you don't do that. And so I thank you for that. He's in Sri Lanka. Uh, but uh, obviously, that's, that, that, uh, these are all things that make us different. There's inner city versus rural, and we all have these issues. So you know, if somebody professes today that Jesus is Savior and Lord then that person must also be able to recognize they have a spiritual family that they did not choose, but God chose that family, and that they should love the family members accordingly. Right? Now, let me throw another wrench into that statement. Their doctrinal beliefs and their practices are secondary. I need to say that, because some of you came out of church splits. Some of you have come here... Uh, from various backgrounds and different reasons. And there's still feelings in the heart when you see a certain person in Walmart or across the street or whatever. There are certain people that you would just like to avoid. I know that's true. We've all talked about it. And I'm just telling you that somehow you have to look away from those things and be able to say in your heart, that person loves Jesus regardless of what they believe or how they act in their Christian faith compared to me. And I am to love them just for the sake that they call Jesus Lord. Alpine, I hope that's a rebuke to some of you. And to me, because I'm first in line doing that, just so you know. Our attitude toward the saved. And then look at uh, verse 4. Uh, their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer nor take up their names on my lips. We're talking about the unsaved all around us. And, and this comes in two parts because the first half of this verse is, is David telling us that the life and the afterlife, really, of those who chase after or follow after other gods is filled with sorrow. And so, in a sense, I think what he's saying is we need, at least my take on this, we need compassion uh, in our hearts for the state of being of those who are not uh, believers in Christ because they're spiritually lost. That's the first reason. We said last week in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, they were blinded by the evil one. People have been blinded. So on some level, it's not all their fault. Yes, we're all going to stand before God. But on some human level, there's also the sense of accountability that uh, I'm accountable for my actions, but there's someone who's trying to do everything he can to prevent another person from knowing Christ. And that's the one who's our greatest enemy. He has blinded their eyes. And so, again, we should have compassion even for the ones who may uh, rip you off, steal your house, uh, or steal the stuff in your house, uh, destroy your car. Uh, uh, if you go and sit in a large city and try to eat a meal outside and a crowd comes along and you don't like what they're doing, all that stuff happens. And somehow in our hearts, what happens to us as Christians is we go to that place 
where we say, if I had a weapon right now, I'd tell them something. Or if I had a chance, I would deal with this issue myself. Or if I could be a political leader and handle that situation differently, I would do so. But somehow out of our hearts comes a, a great deal of ugliness when these things happen. I'm saying all this instead of talking about let's unify America because that's not going to happen. But what's going to happen is our hearts as Christians are pretty ugly. And we need help. Uh, so the unsaved. Uh, and, uh, you know, if God so loved the world that he gave his life for it, then I think on some level there has to be a sense that we would also love enough that we would share his truth. That's just called compassion to me. But the second part of that verse says, their drink offerings of blood I will not drink, I will not offer, nor take up their names. Uh, and I think there it's a sort of a second part of this. We need compassion, but we also need separation. And I think it's right there in the verse. Uh, from a lifestyle that's influenced by ungodly beliefs. And so we need to love their lost souls, and yet we should not affirm an unsaved person's worldly choices. And I think we all can understand that. It's tough. It's not easy. And it's not easy, especially when you think about your own extended family and your close friends who are not following Christ. And that's where it really gets tough. Uh, there are things like celebrations and, and uh, maybe including like weddings and things where sometimes these things are not meant to honor Christ and we're asked to be a part of that. And uh, some of you have had that. I've had that. It just happens sometimes. It's just awkward for us uh, to be invited to things like that. Sometimes these things bring great stress into our lives. Sometimes these things can uh, just really press us about the, what we believe. And we can sometimes be uh, tempted to compromise in some areas. And so, you know, a fellow worker may come to you and say, uh, Hey, I, I needed to sign this or give a donation to that. Uh, and it might be for an organization that you know that organization does not support uh, good things, but rather maybe Planned Parenthood or some far left liberal ideology that you know you don't want to be a part of. Maybe it's Black Lives Matter. Maybe it's LGBTQ things. And saying no to these things can feel really tough and awkward at times. I think these are things we deal with. And Christians have to know how to respond when something is actually going to hinder their faith or maybe not, and we have to figure that out. It might be a matter of conscience. Maybe in your conscience it's okay to do something or be with somebody or do a certain event, but maybe in someone else's that's just not the case. 1 Corinthians 8 talks about that. And so these things are complicated in a fallen world, and so we have to process through all of this. But you know, obviously for Christians, we keep this in mind that worldly-minded people will always hold us to their perceived understanding of who we are. Did you hear that? It depends on how they have been introduced to what Christianity is supposed to be. They might think you're just phony baloney and that they write you off that way and they think you're a big joke. On the other hand, they might think, well, I know what so-and-so says a Christian is supposed to be and I'm not sure if you're really living up to that. So they're going to hold us to a standard, whatever it might be. I know this, that sometimes Jesus Christ is not on the invitation list of some of the things I'm invited to. And so I have to decide 
Uh, and it's not, I'm not going to give you an answer. You have to decide for yourself uh, when it's right, when it's not proper to do that. Well, what he's saying here is simply this. My attitude must be compassion. My actions must be careful. And I'm not saying always separate, but there has to be a caution mark about that. And that's what he's saying. Look at number five, verse five. Oh, Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I want to ask you about your attitude about contentment. Lord, you're the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You're, you know, good things there. Uh, I'm, I'm content with what I have kind of an idea. I, I, uh, uh, in fourth grade, I, I, I missed a month of school. I couldn't walk well. I had some things wrong with my feet, and I missed four weeks plus of school. My parents at that time and my age were, you know, worried about me, and so they took me to a store, threw me in the, put me in the car, took me to a store, and bought me a new Schwinn bicycle. It was red with chrome. It had a built-in headlight. I just thought that was the coolest thing of all. And uh, so I actually could ride that even though I wasn't going to school. I, I would put my feet on their sides and kind of just pedal that way. And I actually, so I, I rode that. Then when things cleared up, I took it everywhere, of course, and I rode it to Little League. And I can remember riding to Little League with my bike and, uh, you know, with kickstand. So you don't want to drop the, those good bikes with the nice chrome on them. So you have to leave it up. So I did that. But I noticed as a kid that some of my buddies, they had brakes, like hand brakes on their handlebars. They had a gear shift on their handlebars. And suddenly I realized my bike is not cool anymore. And it was still new. And I was already complaining about the fact that I didn't have handbrakes and a gear shift. Uh, I, uh, when I got graduated from high school, I, I worked for a year, made a bunch of money, and then I was going to go to college. And so to go to college, I bought a 1965, it was three years old, 1965, uh, Pontiac Le Mans convertible, 326 V8. I'm saying this for the guys. And, uh, and it had a, you know, a Hearst uh, three-speed stick on the floor. Okay, so it's more of a girl's car than a guy's car. That's what I was told. Now, on this day, I'm not supposed to say that, but I'm, st- I'm not poli- politically correct. Who cares? But I took that to college thinking I got a really cool car. And then I saw and rode in guys who had a 426, instead of a three, and uh, they had a four-speed on the floor, and they had this and that, and stereos that blow your, your ears out. And I'm like, my car is just wimpy compared to theirs. It's not right. What I'm saying is that we, we have things. All of us have things. And what happens is, at some point in the journey, we just look to the right or the left, and we say, but they have a better one. They have a better model. They have a nicer this and better that. Uh, they live in a better home. We go through these things, and we are often very much uh, having the disease of being discontent. It's something that we all struggle with. And so the question that I think that, uh, as David is saying this, I think the question for us would certainly be this. Is Christ enough and, and, and I don't think that we have the capacity to measure that, really. Unless something's taken away. 
Now, if you have really good health and suddenly you don't, suddenly you're way more dependent on him than you were before. And suddenly he becomes more important to you than things you maybe can't do anymore. If you uh, uh, have nice things and a tornado comes through and takes it, or a storm of some kind, or a tree goes through the roof of your house, suddenly those things that you have, they just become less important to you than the one that you have to lean on in that moment. And so contentment is something that we probably don't learn very much about until we go through something negative that removes the things that we're relying on, depending on, and and soaking up the joy because we have them. Philippians 4, verse 11 and 12, Paul wrote this about contentment. You probably know where I'm going. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, have nothing, and I know how to abound. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But verse 19 adds this, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. And so contentment becomes a major area that we have to evaluate. Where are we at in this area of contentment? I uh, love this song. You know it well. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, What heights of love, what depth of peace when fears are stilled and when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, is that true? Here in the love of Christ I stand. He is hopefully all I need in the day that we live in. Then he talks about, in verse 6, he talks about lines. He says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. The word lines uh, uh, in in Hebrew is hebel or kebel. Uh, It's talking about a rope that is twisted. Uh, A measuring line back in that time would have been uh, that which was twisted to stay, uh, to give it tightness and uh, and some weight to it. And uh, those ropes were meant for many different things. But it all, the word is also stretched out to mean not only a, a measuring line, but it also means a district or an inheritance that is marked out. So somehow there's this idea of a line that's marked out, a territory. He says it's fallen to me in pleasant places. I have a good inheritance. I, I don't know about you, but I, I, I have always had a problem with signs that say, keep out. And keep off. I don't know about you, but I, so I, I one I don't remember. My parents always told me about it was that there, we went to Warsaw, Indiana, where we had a cottage and uh, and uh, back in the day, and there was this pond, beautiful pond, and well, this is a Sunday where we're going for services, okay, uh, evening services there, 
And there's this pond that has swan in it and had some ducks and all that kind of stuff. And a sign that says, keep out. So I, I climbed on the fence. I, we have five kids. And I climbed on the fence and had white pants on. And my, so my parents told me, because I don't care. I didn't know. I, I fell in. Didn't have a change of clothes. And it was mucky, mud, mucky, all over my white pants and duck poop and everything else on me. And, and then I had to go to church. You know, so it was mostly a matter of embarrassment for my family, obviously. Uh, but uh, I was soaked, and that's just the way that goes. When you don't read signs or when you don't care, things happen. I was with three uh, buddies, and we uh, saw a fence that's in, down the road from where I lived. The fence always said, keep out, keep out. There's a bunch of those. And I, with my buddies, we decided to, let's find out what's in there. <laughs> it was a bunch of woods. And so we climbed over the fence, got in. We're going through the woods, and we finally come to a house that I'd never seen before because it's back in the woods. And this guy must have been, like, what, sitting watching for people to do this? I don't know. But he, he saw us. We heard the cussing and, his, and the threats. And we just took off running like crazy and ran back for that fence. And they climb over. I'm climbing over. And I got my pants caught on the barbed wire piece that was on, on the top of the fence. And then I fell on the ground. And they're, they're already gone. <clears throat> And so I fell on the ground. So I'm laying on the ground, and all of a sudden I, I felt an electric charge that hit my finger. It just, it was searing, and I'm like, what in the world did I, I'm just a little guy. And I, I thought it was an electric fence. No, no, I picked my hand up, and I had a stag beetle that decided to stick its you know, big pinchers into my finger, and it was just stuck on my finger, just dangling there, like, and it hurt. And I never had been bitten by a stag. Have you ever been bitten by a stag beetle? You probably don't care. If you ever watched Brave Wilderness on, on YouTube, then you would know that this is a big deal for a little guy. And uh, it wouldn't come off. And I'm shaking my finger, trying to get that thing off. And it would not let go. And finally, I had to take it and get it by my other fingers. And I squeezed it. And it let go. I threw it in the leaves. I have tears in my eyes. And I got a little bit of two little blood, little blood marks on my finger. And I got back on my bike and caught up with the guys, and I'm telling them the story, and they didn't care at all. All they cared about was the guy that was going to kill us, you know. And so that was the end of that. But keeping out is a big deal. Keeping off can be a big deal. Those are barriers for a reason. And sometimes the Lord has barriers in our life, and he has other places where he invites us to come into his territory where it's good and safe. I'm telling you that because it's so, this is so true. Uh, in, in, uh, don't turn, but in Genesis 13, you remember the story of Abraham and Lot. And, and uh, uh, the territory was too much for both of them. And so Abraham says, Lot, you uh, get first choice. You take whatever land you want. And you need to take your land, your, your people and your animals and go there. Because we can't, it can't sustain us both in this place. So, you know, Lot looks... And he probably already knew exactly where he wanted to look. Most young guys do. He saw the valley and he saw way in the distance. I want to go that way because he knew that Sodom was that way. And that's where he went, near Sodom. And he pitched his tents there. That's where he really thought that's going to be the best place. Marketing, money, uh, opportunity. Uh, that's where I'm going. Abraham was content where he was. And so God said, Abraham, I want you to look around you. Do a 360. Look north, south, east, and west. 
and everything as far as you can see from where you're standing, I'm going to give you. And then I'm going to bless you in that. And I guess the point is that that became a, a kind of a, a place where God invited him to say, this is now your territory, this land of Canaan. It's going to belong to you. It's, and I'm going to bless you in it because you're content where you are. You're not looking for something else. Lot fell into a lot of trouble. Abraham fell into blessing because he was listening to God and staying where he was supposed to be. I don't know what lesson you can draw from that. I just know here's David saying the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Now, yeah, he's king. He's a king. But it's not easy being a king in his world. Uh, he's, he's paid dearly to be able to say that. Uh, he's fought a giant. He's, he's fought, had military campaigns, and he's had threats on his life, and he's had his own family try to take him down. Uh, his lines were not beautifully sweet, uh, wonderful, peaceful uh, life that he lived. But he's saying, in spite of all of that, the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. And finally, he's saying, I have a good inheritance. And so what he's really saying to us, if you can just understand this all, is to put it together. Are you content this morning with God's leading in your life? Are you content today where you are currently? Are you content today where you are heading are you content to be in heaven? Or does that bring discontentment? Because it would take you away from something here. And so we need to evaluate our attitudes about that. Verse 7 and 8. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. What's your attitude regarding godly counsel and conviction? If we seek the Lord first in our lives, that's when his blessing comes into our life. That's from Matthew 6.33. And God has given us warnings and direction and instructions from his word. Uh, He's... He even, even beyond his word, he communicates to us even through meditations. I mean, David talks about that. I, I want to read uh, a little portion, just two pages back. It's really two or three pages back. It's in Psalm 5. I want to read this. What is, uh, has been recorded into a song, I still think it's refreshingly wonderful. I'm going to add something else to this. But what, what this song that David has written now, if you have a King James version, then you have the words to this song. The other versions have adjusted it so it's not very singable. But uh, back in the 70s, whatever the song came out, give, uh, give ear to my words, O Lord. Uh, consider my meditation. I think the King James says, hearken. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For unto you will I pray. My voice you shall hear in the morning. O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto you and will look up. That last phrase is just so amazing because, again, this idea that I must, in the morning of my life, 
before I step into this world, I must look up. I must be yielding myself to him to listen to what he has to say, to, to be what he's calling me to be. And so there's this sense of godly counsel. I need godly counsel. Do you need it? Really? I mean, do you need it? Well, let's go back and say, is he Lord? If he's Lord, then I'm telling you, you need this. And, and so godly counsel, especially in the day we live in, is so critically important. But I also need conviction. When's the last time you were deeply convicted by something in your life? And, and the thing of it is, is that you need conviction to even find Christ, don't you? And so as Christians, sometimes perhaps we've gotten away from uh, godly counsel. Maybe we don't even feel convicted about certain things. Maybe that's just been something you've not dealt with in a long time. But I just want to say this, first of all, here, here's this song that he's saying. This king is saying, I need to, I'm going to look up in the morning because I'm looking up like a baby bird's looking up to be fed. I'm, I'm asking you to do that. But then look at verses 11 and 12 of that song. But let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you will surround him as with a shield. Godly counsel uh, is, is such a fantastic thing that we have access to, that God would uh, direct us and speak to us and communicate with us is wonderfully uh, unbelievable and almost undescribable to somebody else. And then conviction is that thing that we need in our lives. We, first of all, needed it for forgiveness. We needed it for salvation. And it's an ongoing thing in our lives. And so 1 John 1, uh, chapter 1, 8 and 9 is, is that verse for believers that we are still convicted and we still can come to him and confess our sins and he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need that in our lives. How are you doing in that area? Have you found life just racing by and maybe you needed some counsel and you just didn't consult him? Maybe you stepped into things you shouldn't have and trials and tri tribulations, the pressures coming on your way and maybe he's not been the first place you've gone to for consultation and help. You've gone to other things, other people, other situations, and you're trying to draw strength from all of that when really you just, if you just get on your knees and consult with the one who knows all the answers and is just waiting for you to do that because no one else can solve those problems for you. But we think they can. Some of you probably hired a lawyer before you talked to God. I'm just saying, he's the one who is our resource and our truth. Look at verses 9 and 10. What's your attitude regarding eternal security? Look at this. Oh, by the way, we do preach that here. I'm just going to throw that out. But it comes from verses like this. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, David's writing this uh, with a sense of assurance. First, he says, therefore, my heart is glad. Uh, uh, there, there, it's a threefold response. 
uh, to this idea that my heart is glad. And the word heart there could you could intersperse really the idea of your soul. It's it's the very center of your of your life. My my soul, that part of me that thinks and processes and feels and so on. Therefore, my soul or my heart is glad, and, and my glory rejoices. What's your glory? It's 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 your spirit life. It's it's the very life energy within you. Your your spirit is that which uh, you know allows you to have breath in your lungs and so on. My my glory or my spirit rejoices. And then he says, my flesh also will rest in hope. My body will rest in hope. Uh, I, I'm. It's such a confident statement. Why? Because he says, for you, God, will not leave my soul in Sheol, the place of the dead. You're not going to leave me there. This is David praying this and with a confidence because here's what he says. Nor will you allow your holy one. That word holy one is the idea of sanctified one. It's the uh, another way of saying Messiah. Neither will your Messiah or your holy one or your sanctified one see corruption. It's amazing that uh, here's David praying this uh, thousands of years before uh, Jesus comes along, or a thousand years at least, before Jesus comes along and dies on the cross. And now here we are, uh, 2,000 years again, added to that, and we're still reading this and realizing it's dynamic truth. Uh, That prayer isn't just for David, it's for all of us this morning. If you've given your life to Christ, you have a guarantee from God. Do you hear this? Now, if you were, we always say that uh, I think a person can be falsely converted. I think a person can feel emotional in a moment and make a decision in a moment, call Jesus Lord, Savior. Maybe it was to bail you out of trouble. Maybe you were lonely. Maybe you, uh, uh, there's, there's all kinds of reasons why sometimes we can make decisions like that. They're mental decisions, but they're not life decisions. And so what happens is some folks can just sort of, yeah, I, I want Jesus. That sounds great. Sometimes kids can do that when they're very, very, very young. They don't want to go to hell. It sounds great to go to heaven. But they haven't really processed that. And so I, what I'm saying is that when I preach eternal security, it's not me preaching it. It's the word of God telling me if I've given my life to Christ. David is a true follower of Jesus. These attitudes that he's walking us through are things that he has to deal with in his own life. And when it comes down to this faith in God, especially when it comes to eternal things, this is what he's saying. For you will not leave my soul in, in Sheol. It's, it's a faith statement. And then he says, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Even if he doesn't know what he's saying, he said what needed to be said in God's word to make it real. So that Peter, in his sermon in the book of Acts, chapter 2, and the first sermon Peter preaches in the book of Acts, he uses the quotation from this verse to talk about uh, uh, resurrection to a crowd listening. And that crowd was so moved by what Peter said, they were so convicted by their own sin and the realization that they actually did crucify the Messiah, and yet the Messiah was resurrected. It was part of Peter's message. And so here, Peter draws this out to make his point. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Jesus was only in the grave for three days. Amen? Okay. And there it is in... In this great psalm. And so there's this understanding that uh, I should have a confidence in this. 
uh, in the fact that in my life I have this. Uh, this, if, if God's not going to allow his own son to, uh, to die in the grave, then uh, that's the example we have that we're going to follow him one day and be raised in, in a, in, in, with a new body, a new uh, mind and soul and heart, and all that put together in a new body. And it's going to be incredible. And if you don't believe that, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that you must believe the resurrection to, to be able to say you're a converted Christian. Right? Okay. Christ in you. We said this from Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Praise God. He's in our lives. So we, we claim this, and we rest in this hope, in this amazing sense of resurrection. One last thing, then, in verse 11. In verse 11, he says, you will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is the attitude that you have regarding God's presence? God's presence. You all know that psalm, Psalm 139, we often refer to it, uh, where we're told that the Lord Jesus knows us. God knows us. He knows everything about us. He knows where we are uh, because he's there where we are. In John 15, verse 11, when he talks about abiding in him, here's what he says. uh, That his or her joy may remain, or that his, that God's joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Talking about being abiding in Christ. If he's in your life, his joy will be in you, remain in you, and your joy will be full. So this psalmist is, is walking us through this assessment, if you will, of how we can just look at our lives and evaluate in the day that we live in. This country is messed up, and uh, some of you are, are in positions where your lives are challenged big time uh, more than mine, and all of us have to deal with what's happening around us. And the church is, again, as I've been saying for weeks and weeks, the church is under attack by the evil one. So all of these things are happening. And I can't imagine what new things are going to come about in the next year. Uh, If it's anything like the last three, uh, it's going to be an interesting ride. And while that's taking place, uh, the evil one is certainly escalating his own uh, agenda, his attacks on the church, on individuals as followers of Christ. And so every believer in Christ, I think, needs to be reminded to stand true. That's what this sermon's been about today, that we would stand true, uh, that we would realize that we're living in a day of decay, uh, that our country is still, uh, still has potential to be a better place than it was last year or the year before. But that's based on really the God's grace as he works through our lives. So I'm praying, and maybe I hope you are, I'm praying that God will allow leadership to come out of the woodwork that will stand for truth. I'm asking God to do a work in politicians, uh, change their hearts, their lives, their perspectives, uh, that we would have things returned that are, are things that we hold dear. And I'm not talking about lower gas prices or or housing or whatever we're dealing with. I'm talking about just moral issues and uh, 
that we can pray freely. Did you see in the news the uh, coach who, uh, who bowed on the football field and was taken to court for it uh, just because he prayed by himself? And then when a bunch of kids came and knelt around him because they thought it was neat that he was praying, that's when he got sued. And uh, he won the lawsuit. Praise God, that just happened this last week. He won the lawsuit, so we can pray in public. No one can stop us uh, right now. On the other hand, uh, there's all other laws happening, and it's, it's just crazy out there. So as you and I know, we're asking God to do things in our life, and I, I wish that the flag that's flying was the flag that I served under in my day. And what it stands for, the, the very basic things it stands for, are still true. Uh, but not implemented in our country. So we can do name changes. I can't call the Indians the Guardians. It's still the Indians. It's hard to do that. There's a lot of things that we just can't change. Uh, we don't want to change. Uh, but what we can do, is be we can be those who bring change in the right ways as we stand firm for Christ. So at your workplace, at school, uh, being faithful to Christ in a day when no one is, uh, being faithful to Christ in these days, it means that you're going to impact someone else. And that's the best we can do. And that's the right thing to do. So let's be faithful to him. And let's see him do some great things. He's called us to reevaluate ourselves in a day of testing. And let's, let's, de- let's be that today. Lord, we are, uh, again, reminded from your word of these things. Uh, we... Uh, Thank you so much that you can allow us to be together today. We came through the COVID season, and you have been wonderfully blessed, uh, blessed our church in many different ways. We've remained solvent, and uh, I thank you for all who are here and all who have stuck through this uh, time. Uh, Lord, we have many who are serving in a different building today, and I pray for them and just ask your blessing on that work. Uh, Lord, we are grateful for your presence uh, today we're going to celebrate uh, family and friends and uh, just enjoy the fellowship together that you've allowed us to have. And so I thank you for that today. But Lord, I, I do just place before you those who yet in our circle of friends who do not know you as Lord and Savior. And I, I ask your mercy and blessing on those that need you and that you would work through us in our conversations and in our life actions that someone would be affected by uh, those things that we can share with them. Lord, use us as a church in these days and uh, be an encouragement to our missionaries as we stand true with them and that they can count on the fact that back home there's still churches that stay true to your word and stay faithful even in their own testing ground. And I thank you for those who serve far away that are faithful to you no matter all the crazy things that happen and cultures that are just shifting and changing. Lord, we recognize these are last days in many ways. We don't know what that means in terms of length, but we know what that means in terms of our responsibility to stand true to you, to be faithful, to finish the race. And so help us to do that. We thank you for your word, and may we reassess ourselves and reevaluate where we're weak in certain areas, and may we just do uh, diligence to that, Lord, and find our way to walk with you in a worthy way. And we give you all the praise and the glory for all that you're doing. And commit these thoughts to you in Christ's name.